All right, Alexander, let's uh, talk about uh, Zelensky's travels. Doesn't seem like he wants to go back home. <laughs> Just expected. It's odd. It's strange, but it's also expected. And uh, let's also talk about uh, what happened at uh, the EU meeting, which, by the way, Zelensky was supposed to be in attendance, but then he was told not to show up because that might have uh, triggered Orban. But we did get uh, a vote on uh, a session for Ukraine and Moldova, session talks for Ukraine and Moldova, as, as well as a candidate status for Georgia and um, Orban. He left the room. He didn't even participate in the vote. And um, I think that was actually a pretty, pretty good move on Orban's part, if, if you want my opinion. But anyway, we have a, a whole bunch of news to get to with regards to, to Ukraine, Zelensky and the European Union. Mm, so Zelensky goes to the United States. Yeah. Yeah, let's start with the trip, yeah. Let's start with the trip. So he goes, to, well, he goes to Argentina. He meets Orban there. They have an argument. He goes on to the United States. He pleads and begs for money. He's not going to get any money now <clears throat> before Christmas, uh, before the new year. Um, so the Christmas present that he was hoping to get, you know, the $61 billion of aid, that's not come. Now, so, uh, after he left... <clears throat> A deal was done between McConnell and Schumer to hold another vote in the Senate next week, apparently. But Mike Johnson, who is you know the Speaker of the House, he says he's not interested. This is the, the Senate can do whatever they like, but his position is unchanged. And we'll see how much opposition, how many Republicans, what the Republicans in the Senate choose to do. But he's not going to get any money from the United States and nobody expects him to before February at the earliest. And in the meantime, we've had an impeachment vote in the United States. We've got apparently reports, well, not apparently, I've, I read them. There are reports in the media here in Britain that the president himself, Joe Biden, he's now apparently um, only worrying and thinking about both the impeachment and the legal proceedings against his son. And that is now his all-consuming, overriding concern and topic. And so an unsuccessful trip for Zelensky in the United States. So he then comes to Europe and he goes to Oslo and meets the king and the leadership of Norway. I'm not quite sure why. Bear in mind, Norway is not a member of the European Union. He then apparently went to Wiesbaden in Germany, which, um, again, I don't completely understand what the precise purpose of that visit was. Germany is in the middle of a political crisis. Scholz and his coalition partners have patched together a budget, but... Everybody's unhappy. If you read the German media, there's lots of criticisms. Things are not good there. They're all absorbed by these things. He's kept away from Brussels. And I can't help but think that, you know, what Zelensky wanted was an invitation to go to Brussels. But they kept him away. And again, it's not just Orban. <laughs> I am sure that they didn't want him to meet there. Because uh, Orban is a known quantity. There's all sorts of other EU leaders who probably, if they met Zelensky, given how, shall we say, um, unpopular Zelensky is becoming, um, it's quite likely that they were worried that if he actually was in Brussels and was 
trying to lobby EU leaders to vote uh, um, for um, accession talks for Ukraine and for funding for Ukraine. He was probably They were probably worried that he was there. It might actually put people off, <laughs> not just Orban, but others as well. So um, eventually they packed. I, I, I'm not even sure where he is at the moment, whether he's back in Kiev. There were some reports that he visited Poland and had a brief meeting with Donald Tusk. But whatever it is, it's the same old story that we've seen with Zelensky in the past. When he leaves Kiev, he doesn't want to return. You have these strange, aimless, prolonged journeys that he engages in. And to the extent that he meets people who are important, the meetings themselves don't go well. So anyway, the EU then gets round to this discussion. So they're going to have discussion about accession talks with Ukraine and with Moldova. And as you correctly say, they've given Georgia candidate status, whatever that means, by the way. I think Turkey has had candidate status since, what, 2002? <laughs> Something like that. But anyway, I mean, I, I'm not going to... Uh, uh, 100 years. <laughs> 100 years. I'm not, I'm not going to get into, explore explore all of that. But anyway, so we have... We have um, 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 a decision, discussions about this. Orban has made it absolutely clear that he thinks that in, in bringing Ukraine into the EU is a terrible idea. Um, one senses that quite a lot of other people basically agree with him. As is always the way, though, in these sort of meetings, when it comes down to it, nobody wants to Apart from Orban, nobody's prepared to go up against the EU combinat. They're all worried about funds, about having funds frozen or refused by the Commission. So Orban makes it completely clear, I'm not interested in this. This isn't something I think, I think this is a terrible idea. Um, but he talks about, 30 billion euros of money supposed to go to Hungary, which is frozen. Um, he's not prepared to greenlight Ukraine's aid package. One senses he's probably not going to greenlight either the accession talks between Ukraine and the EU unless something is done with that. The EU unfreezes 10 billion euros <laughs> for Hungary just before the accession talks. Orban is not going to vote for something that he fundamentally disagrees with. So he leaves the room. And that, that way, he keeps his um, position un, you know, under, you know, uh, uncompromised. He can come round and vote against in the future. And he's just come back and said, you know, there's going to be 75 possible opportunities to vote against it. In the future, so he's not in any way compromised on his views, but he's got 10 billion euros, <laughs> and uh, the EU has got accession talks, which nobody, I think, who looks at the situation really thinks are going to go very far. I mean, even Mark Rutte, the Dutch Prime Minister, the outgoing Dutch Prime Minister, who's, current, who's currently been in London, has said that these talks will go on for years. 
Nobody seriously thinks that Ukraine is remotely uh, ready for EU membership. And besides, all of this <coughs> ignores the military realities of what's actually happening in Ukraine at the moment, which is that it is losing the war. Now, why is the EU going for accession talks with Ukraine at this moment in time? I mean, we can, I think, park to one side, Moldova and Georgia, if they were going to, uh, you know, launch accession talks for Ukraine, they had to give some kind of salt to the Georgians and the Moldovans because otherwise they would have been very angry. Maria Sandu, who's in a diff under a lot of pressure in Moldova, would have probably felt undermined and compromised. So why do they do it for Ukraine? I think there's a very simple reason, actually, which is that the um, EU is very worried, indeed, about all of these signs that the United States is um, wavering on Ukraine. They're probably even more alarmed about, you know, the words from people like Richard Haas at the Council for Foreign Relations, that, you know, there have to be some kind of talks between um, uh, Russia and Ukraine, because what they are most worried about is that the Americans and the Russians will start to talk to each other over Ukraine. There's now been a recommendation to that effect by George Beeb, who is a, you know important figure in the American political establishment, uh, foreign policy establishment. So the EU are extremely worried about this. The EU Commission, in particular, doesn't want anything to happen which could possibly compromise the principle of unlimited and unending EU expansion. And they don't want the Americans bargaining over their heads about something like that. So they've started these accession talks. It basically, I think, in order to close down any possibility of negotiations. I think this is what this is all about. Yeah, but it, it doesn't really accomplish that goal, does it? No. I mean, it, if the U.S. Wants to, wants to talk to Russia, they're going to talk to Russia. I don't think they're going to really care that much about about the EU, but but they've all admitted the the interesting part about um, the the coverage of this story. I was reading the Guardian uh, today, and they were covering the story. And every Collective West outlet admits that this was a political decision. Even EU members, even EU member states, and even even Ursula and Michelle pretty much admit that this was a political decision. It had nothing to do with any of like the real requirements for accession into the European Union, financial, economic, uh, foreign policy, diplomatic, had nothing to do with any of that, legal. It was purely a political decision. And, and Orban is right to, to walk out of the room and say, you know what, I got my 10 billion. You guys want to, uh, you guys want to vote Ukraine in? Go ahead. Well, it, it, I, I, I can't stop this. It's, you know, it's, why stop this? I'm not going to be able to convince you guys otherwise. It's like him saying, you know, you, 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 you're so obsessed with this. Go ahead. Go oh, ahead absolutely. and hang yourself. He's, he's absolutely that, that's right. how I see it. Yeah. I mean, can I just yeah. say something? If, if, if uh, Orban 
had stuck to his guns and vetoed this proposal, firstly, he wouldn't have got those 10 billion euros. Secondly, they would have found a way around their procedures and they would have just excluded him from further discussions. I mean, what I mean, pe people, are, I think, are, again, very naive about this. They, they assume that, you know, it's possible for Hungary to by itself or with Slovakia to uh, you know, block accession talks. I, I, I happen to know that EU decisions are sometimes made, especially at the, um, you know, the, the Council of Ambassadors, which is the one where most of the decisions, by the way, get rubber stamped, that they're often made without governments knowing about this. <laughs> I mean, it, it's because their representatives are excluded. What the EU is perfectly capable of doing is deciding that, um, you know, they should hold a discussion in Brussels about admitting or starting accession talks with Ukraine and Orban and Fico don't get an invitation. And if they try to turn up, well, you know, their plane is stopped at the airport or something. You know, I, I, I think people need to understand that th this is how it works. I, I can remember back in 2015... <laughs> that um, um, the uh, incoming Greek government of Tsipras, by the way, discovered that it had supposedly agreed to and voted for sanctions, a particular group of sanctions against Russia, of which they hadn't even been informed about. So, I mean, you know, and I, I understand this kind of thing goes on all the time. So... Orban knows perfectly well that if they want to get this, if they want to press on and do this, they will do this. The, the fact that there are rules and procedures, the EU doesn't care about those rules. They, the, the rules, EU rules, prevented the European Central Bank from, you know, freezing funding to Greece and Cyprus um, during the financial crisis. That didn't mean that the EU European Central Bank didn't do it. So I, I think people need to understand this. I mean, because I, I know that um, Orban's actions have come in for some criticism, but he knows perfectly well that, um, you know, what would eventually happen. And given the way that he's been monstered and demonized, um, it would be applauded in the Western media if he was excluded from discussions in that way, even if it was done contrary to the rules. So I think he did exactly the right thing. He said, look, I'm totally opposed to this thing. This is completely wrong. Um, but if you want to go ahead, just go ahead. I mean, I, but don't pretend, don't make anybody think that I think that this is right. And of course, they've gone ahead and again, they've broken their own rules by starting accession talks on a country that is completely ineligible by any conceivable measure to EU membership. 
But of course, that's what the rules-based international order is all about. The rules-based international order is that we make up the rules as we go along, and it suits us. Now, about this being a completely political decision, of course it is. As is, as is Moldova, I just want to say. Absolutely. I just want to say, as is Moldova, Absolutely. they don't fulfill any of the requirements. No. It's not only no. Ukraine. Yeah, no. just wanted to. Of course you know. not. But, uh, uh, but you know, that that is... I mean, what this whole thing demonstrates and proves conclusively, once and for all, is that the EU, whatever it was when it was first set up, you know, all those years ago in 1960, at the time of the Treaty of Rome, today, it's purely a geopolitical project. It is nothing else. The fiction that it was some kind of economic association has disappeared completely. And as I said, it's it's a geopolitical project of the collective West, of the Atlanticists, of the neocons, and all of that. But it is also, to some extent, a geopolitical project that has its own um, you know, existence now, and which is worried that the United States, that there are people in the United States who are becoming sceptical about the whole process, the, 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 you know, the way it's... Uh, now starting to conduct itself specifically over the issue of Ukraine. And we see this even more clearly with NATO, because, again, the NATO Secretariat, Stoltenberg, and people like this, they're pushing relentlessly to get Ukraine deeper and deeper, closer and closer into NATO. And it turns out that there are people in the United States who are actually angry about this within the existing administration. They say, we're not agreed to this at all. But the bureaucracy in NATO and some of the European members of NATO, just like the EU bureaucracy, and remember the two bureaucracies, the NATO and EU bureaucracies are in the same city, they meet, talk with each other all the time. The, the, the two bureaucracies and some of the EU states are, and some of the NATO states are obsessed with this project in part because they want to lock it down in order to create problems for the Americans. Now, of course, as you absolutely rightly say, at the end of the day, the Americans want to walk away and deal directly with the Russians, and they will. And if the Americans do a deal with the Russians and say no membership, no NATO membership for Ukraine and no EU membership for Ukraine either, the EU has no choice. It has no way round that. I mean, they can argue all they like, but it's the Americans and the uh, Russians who would, in that case, decide. But the Europeans, deep down, they know that. But precisely because they fear that that is what might happen, that is why they're becoming so agitated and why they're prepared to go to these extraordinary lengths to start accession talks with Ukraine now. And it, to be straightforward, it is accession talks because we're talking about money. There's still this 50 billion euro fund for Ukraine. Well, that's been kicked off. That's been delayed all the way to January. That was supposed to be signed off now. I mean, they will eventually pass it, but clearly lots of EU states are not happy about this. And the other thing that apparently there was no agreement or consensus about, and this goes way beyond Hungary now, 
is about using money from uh, uh, frozen Russian assets. So this was, again, a big push that the EU Commission made, but it seems that over the last couple of hours, um, a lot of states said, you know, this is extremely dangerous waters. We're not really sure that this is a good idea at all. And again, apparently that has been put off and we don't yet know when that decision, <laughs> it will be made, by the way, when that decision will eventually also be made. Yeah, just uh, I want to get to that in, in in a bit, but you're right with the whole NATO thing. Um, Congress yesterday approved legislation which prevents any president from withdrawing from uh, withdrawing the U.S. from NATO without the approval of the Senate. And this was reported on by the Hill. So, I mean, they're freaking out. Obviously, it's about Trump, but they're freaking out that that, that Trump would, would come into office and he would pull the U.S. out of NATO. And then the whole thing, the whole bureaucracy just crumbles. So, I mean, they're, they're, they're obsessed with this bureaucracy of, of this, this combine of NATO and the EU. They're absolutely obsessed with it, the globalists, because that's, that's how they wield their power. Correct. Is through these, uh, these two huge uh, bureaucracies. But, uh, you know, Moldova, Ukraine, eventually Georgia, eventually Bosnia, uh, who, who pays for all of this? We're not talking about a country the size of Cyprus. We're not talking about 500,000 people or 800, a small, which is, it's still significant to take on an economy. Even a small economy needs a lot of money. Given the state that Europe is in, given the state that Germany is in, which is the country that pretty much bankrolls the entire European Union, who's going to pay for all of this? Who's going to well, pay for Ukraine? Who's going to pay for Moldova? Who's going to pay for Georgia? Who's going to pay for Bosnia? Well, not this is a catastrophe, and Orban knows it. Oh no, Orban knows it. I knows mean, actually, it. I mean, you're absolutely correct. I mean, yeah. if Ukraine were admitted in its current form into the EU, I mean, it would break the EU. I mean, the the, the cost of trying to carry this enormous country, uh, which is bankrupt, obliterated, smashed, <laughs> I mean, it would far exceed the amount of the Rus frozen Russian assets, if I could say so. And we're talking about trillions. But, um, um, and it wouldn't make any economic sense either because, well, I mean, I don't want to go into the economic geography again, but it would make no economic sense without some kind of deal with Russia, which, anyway. But the point is that the EU leaders are not interested in these issues. This isn't what they are about anymore. I mean, it's not what... Scholz and Habeck and uh, uh, Baerbock are concerned with. It's not what Ursula is concerned with, what the Commission is concerned with. I mean, none of them think about these matters anymore. Because for one thing, they know that when the decision, if the decision to admit Ukraine is ever going to be made, it won't be made by them. <laughs> We're still talking about a process that's going to take several years. By the time... It, by the time that decision materializes, they'll be gone. They'll be, uh, uh, you know, running something else, you know, the uh, UNHCR or something else. I mean, they, you know, they, they, they will have moved on. And as I said, from their point of view, this is a geopolitical project. They're worried about what the Americans might be doing. They probably do sense that things on the battlefields are not going well anyway for the Ukraine. So that they've set their store 
they're going to make it more, as, more, as difficult as they can for the Americans, and especially for a future Trump administration, to do a kind of deal, a possible deal with the Russians. And, well, if somebody has to pick up the bill, that will be future generations of political leaders and, of course, the distressed and unhappy people of Europe. But since when did they care about them? Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. When Ursula is appointed the the new director of the of the WEF, when Klaus Schwab hands over the WEF to Ursula, and and Ukraine has uh, has now been has has collapsed or is now part of Russia or is connected to Russia, she's going to say it's not my fault. I did my part. I expanded the European Union. I helped out Ukraine as much as I could. You know, it's don't don't put the blame on me. That's that's it. That's everything right there. They, oh, they've done their part now. Now they can move on to their next gig. Absolutely. I mean, don't exclude at all the possibility, by the way, that if we see Ukraine collapse, um, some kind of alternative government will be set up in Europe. Okay, Ukrainian government will be set up in Europe. And that alternative government, which might have no government actual... Government in exile. Will have, might have no actual... A government in exile, which might have no actual... Um, control in Ukraine itself might press on <laughs> with the accession talks. Just, just, just say. And of course, if that government is located in Lvov, okay, it will, it's, it'll be useful because that way it will be able to continue to claim control of the rest of Ukraine. And and they'll and they'll be able to to funnel and and wash all kinds of funds and exactly, all kinds of money through. Exactly. Through so you know, don't, don't don't assume that as a, uh, I, I some time ago, years ago, I, I, just as Putin apparently said in his press conference that you know he'd he, uh, if he was able to advise the younger Putin, he'd advise him don't be naive about Western leaders. Uh, it's the same with me, to be honest. Once upon a time, I thought that EU leaders especially cared about economics and these issues that we've been talking about. I now have come to understand that they don't. Yeah, the irony of it all is is through their expansion and through this this shift in the EU's let's say the EU's mission statement um, from from an economic union to to a geopolitical um, project. The, the irony is that uh, it, it's going to be this expansion and this shift in a mission which is going to be the the ultimate demise. Of Absolutely. The union. It's also doing something else, by the way, which the Europeans may not be may, are starting to to sense. And is making them angry. But of course, the more the rest of the world sees the EU as a geopolitical project, the more hostile to it it becomes. <laughs> and we we see this repeatedly when EU officials and EU diplomats go around the world, um, where you once upon a time there was a lot of goodwill extended to them. Now that this goodwill is melting away. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I think that's crystal clear. People people mock the the, the EU leadership. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and they're not seen as strong either. No. They're actually seen as very weak. Exactly. Yeah. 
All right, we will end it there. The Duran.locals.com. We are on Rumble, Odyssey, BitChute, Telegram, Rockfin, and Twitter X. And go to the Duran shop. 20% off. Use the code the Duran20. Take care.